Hello, uh, this is Nate Gillum, and welcome to Black Men's Friday. This is a podcast using the Anchor app, and anyone can do it. doesn't cost you anything, and it's a good way to get the word out. Okay, um, I'd like to start out uh, by talking about race today, and over the next uh, two podcasts, race historically and race today. And I can remember uh, my first job in mental health back in 1990. I had just returned from active duty uh, with the Army, uh, basic training in AIT. And uh, I got my first job in mental health. And me and two other guys, uh, we were going out after work to shag softballs and two of the other staff. And it wasn't far from work. And so I changed clothes in the bathroom, jumped into my car, was headed out to the park. And as I approached the stop sign, I could see a squad car. That car was perpendicular to my position. And um, before I headed out to the intersection, uh, I looked both ways and then started to uh, cross. As I looked at the car, I said to myself, I bet he's going to pull me over. Why did I think that? You see, I grew up in Chicago. I grew up in a neighborhood called Inglewood and had been stopped by police dating back to my freshman year in high school. I had um, gotten used to it, so I thought. Uh, And so I tried not to think much about it, but I couldn't help it. And uh, well, after four years at Loyola, a stint in the army, uh, and then years of uh, working uh, white-collar jobs, I thought, nah, those days are over. I won't get pulled over. Well, guess what? The lights uh, came behind me, pulled me over to the right, and then I said, damn, this can't be happening to me. So I pulled over and uh, went through the drill, license and registry. And that was followed then by... Um, Where are you going? Where are you coming from? And I said to myself, this can't be happening. Really getting irritated. I cooperated, of course, and uh, I asked the officer, if I'm sitting in my car and you're sitting in your car, uh, how could you tell what I was dressed like? You see, he told me the guy was wearing gray shorts and a pink shirt like mine. But if we're both sitting in our cars, how can you tell what color shorts I were wearing? So, uh, nevertheless, I fit the description and even down to matching my clothes. Um, So I asked the officer again, how could he tell what description of the shorts I was wearing? And he placed his hand on his gun, walked toward me, and I can't really remember the rest. I became more frustrated, hurt, angry, really and uh, overwhelmed with emotion, and uh, we parted ways. And I thought about what, why was I so angry? Well, you see, it was still happening. Uh, Even after I left my community, went to college, served my country, and did all that, got my degree, I had never been arrested. I was what you call a good Negro, a safe Negro, the kind of black guy that would make white feel safe. I never made noise, except for uh, pursuing 
uh, my degree, trying to make a dollar like everyone else in a capitalistic um, uh, barrel of crabs. And as I think of this incident, I can think of scores of other times as well in business, uh, in college, uh, socially. Uh, and I had to live with the hurt of all these incidences. And in all these places where I had worked, whether it was E.J. Brock & Sons, remember the candy company, Brock Candies? Walgreens, um, the Field Museum, Dominic's Finer Foods, even in the Army. I had been called nigger or coon. And so it just brought all that back for me. And I said, when is enough enough? So today's topic is race. As we talk about black men, we must first address the adjective, the descriptor, black, describes the noun. I refer to black as an adjective because it does not describe just the color of the skin. It's also meant to describe the type of person, uh, their physical traits, their uh, psychological characteristics, their personality, the type of person one is. The same holds true for the word white. Ultimately, the physical traits became become associated with psychological traits of personality and these aspects of being a human being. And when I look back at race, you have to go back to the early colonists and the Europeans uh, who came up with the term. This is the United States is where this term comes from. It's not that they were the first to uh, delineate people into uh, various categories. For instance, people were delineated by their language, by their tribe, by their nation, by their region. And so when we're talking about race, we're talking about these types of characteristics. But race in the United States was used to describe people based on biological character. Not just language, or nation, or tribe, or region, or family, or even occupation. You know, you could have a race of shoemakers. So when we look at race, these are the things that we talk about. And as we look at the origin, we have to go back to, of course, uh, the United States. And then ultimately, we must talk about slavery. And as we talk about race, we have to talk about race as an action term as well, or racism, uh, which is the attempt to use race to maintain or deny social power. Not all people uh, designated as white, though, seek social power. Uh, there are many people who seek to dismantle this system of race uh, that empowers them based on the color of their skin. Uh, these will be called anti-racist. But for the overwhelming majority of white, uh, they benefit systems. No one really challenges it. So as we look at race, uh, these are the things that we're looking at, race and racism. So as we look at the origin of race, um, race, well, slavery is old. It goes all the way back to uh, many nations uh, uh, spanning across the globe, but race is relatively new. But the two intersect uh, here in the Americas. In many ways, uh, 
the transatlantic slave trade uh, predates race. However, race evolved out of a need to justify a method of enslaving a broad number of regions and nations. Race became a way of ascribing traits and characteristics to people and entire nations of people in order to ascribe positive and negative attributes. And like the transatlantic slave trade, it describes social class and human rights based on the negative and positive trait that race would assign people based on the color of their skin. In this sense, human rights became hereditary. In other words, uh, if I did not have human rights, then neither would my offspring or my offspring's offspring. And this will last for centuries. And the same, same is true that if a person was white, they would always have human rights. At this point, you might be saying, well, how is it possible then that human rights or even traits themselves, such as personality and psychological uh, traits, can be based on the amount of melanin in one's skin? That makes no sense. You may say that if a child is born into the world, coming in as a blank slate, that personality is determined by the number of resources given that child, the school the child is raised in, social activities, uh, academic endeavors, uh, access to knowledge, various types of skill development activities. That determines the skill of the child, the, the aptitude even, uh, even the child's level of social skill. Race would say, none of those things matter. Child's abilities and thinking uh, is predestined and the environmental um, resources have no influence. Well, that doesn't seem rational, but nevertheless, that is the uh, origin of race. Well, this seems irrational, but consider the motives. What are the motives of those who uh, invented the term? The term. Uh, to answer this question, uh, there's a wonderful um, video, video series actually on YouTube from Danielle Brainbridge. Uh, she made an excellent YouTube video which illustrates uh, this point. She stated, we saw this shift of race being used to describe people based on the phenotype in the 16th and 17th century due to two factors. So this shift of race being used based on a person's phenotype. First objective was the rise of global capitalism by enslaving African people. The second was the theoretical period of enlightenment in Europe, which helped to solidify and normalize this way of thinking that uh, attributes can be based on the amount of melanin in a person's skin, as, as well as uh, social rights and human rights. While the colonies had European indentured servants uh, at that time, and so why use African slaves? Indentured servants came from Europe and were the dominant form of labor in the early colonies and would uh, voluntarily commit to three to seven years of servitude. But due to the harshness of the conditions, uh, many died before the end of this term. Labor made those who uh, survived less uh, able to obtain land once they had completed their servitude. 
this left uh, several former indentured servants poor, unable to sustain themselves, unhappy and disgruntled with the way things were working. Ultimately, rebellion started, the first led by Nathaniel Bacon in 1676. He organized his own militia in Virginia, consisting of white indentured servants and enslaved black people who joined in the exchange for freedom. So they joined a rebellion against the planters or um, plantation owners. Together they captured the capital and burned it to the ground. Soon after Nathaniel Bacon died, they thought nothing had come of it. But what he did was lay the blueprint that by uniting the indentured white and the African, uh, one could overthrow the wealthy planters. This alarmed them, severely alarmed, alarmed them by the prospect of united white and black servants and slaves taken over to protect the uh, economic uh, positions of the planters. So this shifted their strategy from maintaining dominance uh, for maintaining dominance in order to prevent this unifying and then ultimately this uprising from ever happening again. So what they did was to establish a hierarchy between uh, what we call black and what they call white, and they abandoned the system of European indentured servants, favor of black slaves. Soon after black slaves had replaced the indentured servants altogether as the bulk of the labor force, uh, the rebellion uh, had ceased, all rebellions had ceased, why? Because whites, even though they may not have owned slaves, they benefited from what had been called, what is now known as race. And then racism, the empowerment based on the color of your skin. Lawmakers began to make a legal distinction between a black and a white inhabitant. By permanently enslaving the black inhabitant or the person of African descent, and giving poor white indentured servants and farmers more status. The goal ultimately was to separate the two groups, the black and the white, and make it less likely that they would ever unite again. Slave codes then uh, introduced, which prohibited slaves from ever being educated or ever owning firearms. And whites then had to join slave patrols, which would then pit black and white against one another as well. Slave patrols meant uh, patrolling land to ensure that blacks had papers. If they didn't have papers saying who they belonged to, they could of course be punished or lynched or killed. So uh, slave patrols established a common enemy between black and then poor whites and wealthy whites who are now grouped together uh, uh, in order to commodity. And the unity, it also unified the classes of poor and wealthy whites. Slavery then uh, helped to assert European dominance over all others. And it in inspired the propagation of racial hierarchy and this worldwide influence 
went unmatched through the 1600s, 1700s until now. So, the second piece would be the pseudoscience of what was called uh, uh, understanding race, the science of race, raceology, if you will. Okay, John Locke, Emil Kant, and others uh, helped to provide a foundation of divine order that elevated certain European groups and demeaned, demeaned the indigenous groups, the African, the Asian. All of these nations were considered peoples without culture or without any history. You know now, of course, that's ridiculous, but the age of the Enlightenment uh, said that these peoples, these Africans, uh, Asians, uh, indigenous people, were people without any history and that they were savage. And that the only decent were people of European descent. And so they were considered the only people God considered relevant. This period was known in Europe and in America as the period of enlightenment and reason. It had been described as a period of reason. The enlightenment stratified people, put them in layers. Um, which eventually justified uh, for the European his or her most darkest impulses, uh, which was to uh, oppress other people. It offered and eventually justified uh, the taking of economic and social and political power away from other peoples. And the psychological impulses uh, also allowed their sexual and murderous uh, impulses to be fulfilled without any accountability because they were the superior and dominant people over all other. Therefore, the acts of rape or murder, uh, lynching, whipping, working people to death, these things were not considered uh, immoral because the people themselves were not really people. It eliminated any moral accountability for Europeans, those who would exploit the lives of people of color. Race became a system of power by associating racial thinking to logic and reasoning. Brainbridge also talks about uh, an anthropologist named Audrey Smedley. And she said that slavery and the enlightenment worked together to support an already existing social norm or people's biases. This pseudoscience became more concrete by the Enlightenment as the social structures of slavery became more widespread. And these norms were legitimized among the ruling Europeans and then into the lower classes uh, by European philosophers such as John Locke and Emile Kant as leaders of the Enlightenment movement. Now, some very powerful um, statements. So the Enlightenment would allow the enslaved to be viewed as people without God, people without culture, people without history. Uh, we know that's not true. There's a, a, a detailed and long history, longer than European history in African nations. Nevertheless, that's what the Enlightenment helped to legitimize. The writings of uh, European uh, literature and uh, European art, of course, uh, at that time of the Enlightenment. 
help to um, uh, reify these beliefs by Europeans and taught that other cultures were savage. Being enslaved was even viewed as an act of mercy and reason. This way of seeing people was then justified and legitimized. Race then is a political weapon to ensure wealth by ascribing the number of human rights and degree of political power to people based on their biological traits. For those labeled as white, they are given greater political and social power. Those labeled as people of color are given uh, human rights and uh, no human rights, rather, or social power. Oh. So many European academics uh, began studying the origins of race. And this had been influenced by rhetoric that favored the idea of Western European dominance uh, over um, other other nations. And when we look at the work of uh, Charles White at the Manchester Hospital, for instance, he argued that non-white races were inferior and primitive due to the skin pigmentation. And that even women, even white women, resembled the darker races because their bodies revealed areas of darker pigmentation, for example, around the area of their nipple. German scientist uh, Christopher Mangus studied the anatomy of the Negro and concluded that Negroes have bigger teeth and jaws than any other race, as well as signals that they, they, they were not sensitive to pain. He concluded that they feel less pain and lack emotion. So Mangus also claimed that Native Americans were an inferior stock of people who relaxed into a daily sense of melancholy. So uh, races, these people were considered inferior race, less sensitive and uh, less subjected to pain uh, when worked even to so as we look at these things, um, we must ask ourselves today, because most of the day I've been looking at some of the trial in the George Floyd case. Uh, it's the third day of trial now, um, and many of the cornerstones of racism I can see still exist. Although a man was strangled to death in front of the entire nation, the officer involved uh, and the officer involved was fired the guilty officer's defense attorney blamed the officer's behavior on the angry crowd uh, that grew around the officer and the officer became afraid. And that George Floyd's behavior of wiggling and moving while being strangled uh, led to his death. Uh, George Floyd's use of drugs, George Floyd's heart condition, George Floyd's big size as a black man, all of these factors uh, his defense attorney, the officer's defense attorney, argued uh, in the officer's favor. Has this strategy worked in the past, though? That's what you may ask yourself. Well, look at the big black man theory. Uh, this strategy was used in the case of um, not just George Floyd, but Rodney King, Eric Gardner, Michael Brown, and too many others. White officers and their and attorneys can paint the picture white juries and the general public that black men are big, uncontrollable, black men are dangerous, and deadly forces justified. 
and what any white person and is what any what any white person would do in a similar case this that becomes their defense so then you be the judge is race uh, relevant today race has cultivated economic political and social access for people who are white since the 16th century and is interwoven into the very fabric of every domain of our society the act of using race to construct maintain and ignore these systems is what we refer to as racism racism allowed jim crow to rise out of the reconstruction of the south and take the form of race based property deeds as black people fled the south to the north they often had to face race based property deeds which meant black that black people could not purchase property and race based covenants uh within communities which means that blacks could uh no longer live could never live in certain parts of the cities as uh cities were being developed in the 20th century these race based deeds and property covenants allow blacks fleeing white terrorism from the south to to move into communities that were race based race based engineered communities to ensure that black op- properties were devalued and uh segregation would occur and allow segregation to occur uh, which would allow higher property values for white communities and then to pass on greater general wealth to white families well this allows white the convenience of saying i never um practice racism uh, i'm not a racist while they benefit from a system of economic and social injustice that devalues black properties and while increasing the value of their own property as we look at schools for instance that uh, in the 20th century and systems of racism is easy to see how funding over decades were diverted to white schools in addition white benefit uh from these resources because schools are primarily segregated whites again were afforded, afforded the luxury saying i don't discriminate against black my school had a handful of black students and i never did anything to any of them some were even my friend so when you hear this kind of um language uh and say and then a white person says i'm not a racist they should challenge themselves on have they benefited and and continue to help perpetuate by not challenging the racist system that allows them to be more educated to have greater wealth uh and greater resources in their communities than in black communities so in our next pod- podcast we'll take a greater look more in depth look at racism today and how it affects our institutions today our communities today our economy today even how we interact today so you've been listening to black men friday it comes out of my work with black men and the issues that they face as they come into therapy and um these issues are all around them so until then i look forward to seeing you god bless you and take care